Hello, everyone. I'm Mackenzie Baker, and in this episode of the Sports Nutritionist Podcast, I'm joined by Kyle Weber and the podcast's actual host and founder of Sports Nutrition Association, Alex Thomas. In this episode, we appraise the idea of non-tracking dietary approaches and their place and purpose for the dedicated athlete, inclusive of those competing in physique sports. We highlight and discuss the fact that currently, it's probably not actually technically evidence-based to shun the thought of a high-level athlete partaking in periods without macro tracking for long-term success and longevity. We present an argument for why continually macro tracking through the off-season with laser level accuracy may hinder long-term success and carry some hefty negative implications, which may hinder the longevity of an athlete in a particular sport. Before we get into this episode, a quick disclaimer. In a sense, modified intuitive eating is what we're discussing here, and this includes covering some assumptions made around the lack of utility intuitive eating may have in the context of dedicated athletes. So why modified intuitive intuitive eating and not just normal intuitive eating? This ad hoc terminology is appropriately needed to be applied because of the fact that we don't exclusively talk about weight neutral approaches. Intuitive eating is technically weight neutral, and that is not the case specifically or exclusively in this episode, which warrants this little terminology deviation and thus this little disclaimer. Personally, I'd just rather call it non-tracking calorie conscious eating, but in nutrition, we need to clarify these little things. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. If you did, share it with any friends or work colleagues who might gain some benefit and even throw it up on your Insta story if you're feeling friendly. We'd all appreciate it. If you have any questions, feel free to hit myself, Kyle, or Alex up on Instagram. You can find me at Baker underscore, that's M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E-B-A-K-E-R underscore, Kyle at the physique coach AU, all one word, and Alex at Aussie sports nutritionist again all one word i hope you enjoy thanks for tuning in um all right well we'll get into it because we are on a truncated time schedule so thanks for joining me lads we are on the sports nutritionist podcast and i've got kyle weber at the physique coach and then i've got Mackenzie baker at Mackenzie baker j-u-b underscore at the end underscore at the end. Um, and we are talking about intuitive eating, um, intuitive eating on the whole, because there appears to be a bit of a, uh, I guess, misconception around what intuitive eating actually is. And then at the same time, uh, we're going to discuss it as it relates to maximizing performance, um, improvements or qualitative improvements in an off season for an athlete as well. So lads, you all had a read of Eric's paper. What do you what do you think about um, intuitive eating that's suggested in there? And then we'll, and then we'll have a chat because I guess a big aspect of this is putting it in perspective of physique sports, right? Mm. So what what did you think about Eric's paper? Because um, it's a monster. I thought it was a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it was extremely relevant and valid for an industry that is lacking in the elements of behavioral science towards eating um, and potential contraindications that can be occurring from getting into physique sports. I think this paper that Eric's done has just opened a huge door 
into some of the things that we really need to be considering that we've all kind of thought about before and we've kind of pinged ideas back and forth around, you know, what kind of issues um, can be occurring as we are trying to rely on our intuition, whether it's coming into a competition, whether it's coming out of a competition, how that relates to energy deficits and stuff as well. We've all kind of had an idea of, of what occurs and we all kind of think that, you know, we can we can work it out and, and it's kind of split two different schools of thought on really, you know, Un, unfounded opinions um, that have been based off of research in fields that don't really have too much strong relevance. Um, whereas this has come out and really uh, shone a light on uh, getting getting us to have an understanding of, of the impacts that it can create when we are um, at certain levels with it, with with regards to where we are eating, our embodied fat levels, and as well, um, our nutritional literacy. And I think it's kind of uh, paving a way for us to get more of an understanding of uh, our own nutritional literacy and, and the tools and skills in which we need to be considerate of with clients moving forward. Mm. Mm. What, do you think, what do you think about what it su- suggests in terms of like the pathology um, associated with either predispositions of the behaviors for bodybuilders or people who are attracted to bodybuilding and physique sports, as well as um, the behaviors that we see required in bodybuilding, um, you know, like things like tracking food, tracking your training and stuff and what that does in terms of like the um, psychology and behavioral science of it. Oh, I'm going to have to bring it back up, man. Re- re- refresh me. What do you mean? Refresh me on um, on the pathology that was in there. Oh, dude, it's just a general statement. It's, not, it's nothing specific. Yeah. Like, what did you think about it? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, like um, neuro- neuroticism, perfectionism, yeah. OCD tendencies, binary thinking, things like that, like need for control, I guess. Is that what you're alluding to there, Alex? Yeah, yeah. Specifically that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, did you think it yeah, was going to okay. be as full on as that? Yes, because we had we had discussed it, and we know and we know Eric quite well. Um, but I think that it would be very surprising to people uh, once they start reading it that this is this is a lot deeper than what we initially thought. Um, he's getting into some really um, high end personality traits, um, which is extremely important. I think um, when we are seeing a lot of these predispositions, we've, we've known for a while now that people that get into bodybuilding and physique sports have a certain thing about them. And what this paper has done, that what I take out of it anyway, is being able to link different levels of personality traits and where someone sits on the spectrum um, or, or on the continuum with each of those different traits and draw a comparison into, okay, well, this, this kind of group um, is exhibiting a lot of similar traits um, as what we can expect from people with, with similar types of personalities. And so we can kind of start to form a bit of a, an analysis of their of their behavior based off of their personality. And in, in which case we can actually start to, because we saw a lot of these predispositions to issues that can be occurring um, as a result of, of these personality traits, we can start to see what, from a, what I got out of it was from a, a potential coaching perspective, as someone comes into the sport and let's say someone contacts me, uh, I can actually look at them and, and even run a personality test and see where they are sitting to see if it's going to be something that is successful for them um, or if it's something that is just flat out not going to be something that we should be exposing them to. Um, because high levels of, 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 um, of neuroticism, for example, can be extremely beneficial in bodybuilding. Uh, however, if we are noticing that, we can also see that that is going to lead to some negative impacts later on down the track if someone decides to no longer compete anymore. Um, mm. And it will, and it will always, always coincide with something else. 
But do we know definitively that it actually is a positive thing to be that neurotic? Because like just just to give people sort of a bit of a background, I did I did I did a word count check, right? Um, a search function, and it was just over two hundred times that something with psycho or psychotic or like uh, something that relates to a negative psychology. Mm. Um, is referenced neuroses and then control. Now the issue with control is they talk about like control groups and all that stuff. So I would think there's probably over a hundred to 120 references and instances where something along the time, along the lines of neuroses, um, psychotic pathologies, um, and control, uh, and, and needs for control and control tendencies are referenced within that paper. I know Mac, like, what did you message me when you started reading this in detail? Cause you checked it out what last week? Uh, I checked it out, I think, two weeks ago now. I wrote the whole thing, wrote notes on it, really got into it. I think it's a fantastic paper, and I think that it sheds light on, like, the elephant in the room when it comes to physique sports. Mm-hmm. Like, I think most people know that there's some pretty screwed-up stuff happening below the surface that doesn't get much attention, and Eric's basically done a fantastic job of just openly, firstly, identifying it, outlining it, and then talking about some of the outcomes of it. Um, yeah, I think... You know, people who engage in bodybuilding in and of itself, like they're going to be people who are, you know, not your average folk. Um, they will certainly possess like those perfectionism. Well, not always, obviously, but there'll be, uh, I, I would speculate, a higher degree of people with higher levels of perfectionism like traits. Um, and I think that that there is a logical argument that that can promote, uh, I guess, results in in the field of physique sports. Uh, but I think it can be something that people fall into without really looking at their own values and what makes them happy. Um, and it's those situations where people get too deep uh, without really thinking about stuff where they can find themselves in an undesirable psychological situation just to scratch the surface. So I think if someone's going to engage in this sort of thing, this physique sport thing, they really need to make sure that it is something that's really valuable to them because there are risks involved with going down that route. And so I guess, and this sort of, we're circling back to the intention behind this whole catch up, right? Is we know that there's, Hey, there's these behavioral traits um, and there's these behavioral trends within the group that is, um, you know, bodybuilders and we're seeing like a sub and, and so suggestions have been made in this paper where it's like, Hey, we suggest that you have, um, you know, do things like, um, uh, have periods of intuitive eating in the off season, for instance. Right. And the subculture within the bodybuilding world is sort of like, well, no, that's garbage. If I, and they poo poo it and they're like, well, and they write intuitive eating off as something where it's like, Right. Well, if I just eat what I feel like eating and eat as as I'm hungry, then I'm just going to eat whatever and I'll just get fat because I'm starving myself and my body is telling itself to eat, right? Like that's a throwaway statement. And I guess then the other common statement and common thread is that, well, if I'm intuitive eating in my off season, for instance, where hunger cues and physiology isn't um, as full on with uh, you know, with, with someone internally as it would be in, in a preparation period, right? Where their body is like hormonally signaling for them to eat. It's saying, Hey, you need to eat a stupid amount to get yourself back healthy. Um, if it's not in that period and we're doing it in off season, well, then we're not maximizing the off season, right? Because you can't guarantee that you're protein positive and you can't guarantee that you're calorie positive. 
And so if you're not hypocaloric and hypoprotein with even dose proteins, how are you maximizing your off season, right? You're flying blind. So you're not going to be as successful as you could be. And I think these are the two sort of backhanded arguments um, that are really like, in, in my opinion, like a straw man position um, that fly in the face of the recommendation where it's like, hey, in the off season at some point, work on improving your qualitative literacy with your body as it relates to nutrition and have periods of intuitive eating to then offset some of these other neurotic behavioral tendencies that come along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that was that was probably the biggest thing that, that I noticed reading it. Um, it, it. It brought up a lot of my own incongruence from experience of bodybuilding. And I, I can look at it and I can say, okay, um, the suggestion here is that we need to be implementing periods of, of um, intuitive eating throughout an off-season phase because it helps to increase that quality of literacy before getting into something. However, the inner bodybuilder in me goes, but how do you do that? Because I need to make sure that everything in my off season is, is spot on and it's controlled and it's perfect. And then later on you start going, Oh, hang on a second. That's the neuroticism that, that we're speaking about, <laughs> you know, mm. and, and, and this, and this is the control problem that, that that's being really heavily highlighted here too. So I think that, um, going, going along the lines of that, if, if someone was to take a, a skim over it, um, it's really easy to see that that initial kind of knee-jerk reaction that for me as a, a ex-bodybuilder um, has, it, it's, still quite, it's still quite confronting because you can see that, hey, these are things that we know and that we feel, but we kind of block aside a lot. And, and when it gets told to you and you can see it, the whole notion that you get from that, that incongruent internal opinion is, no, 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 I can't do that. That's not right. And, mm. and that in itself is saying yeah. Because if you go, if you don't well, no, if, this isn't okay. If you're not measuring it, how can you manage what you're not measuring? Right, that's what we're taught. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you can't you can't measure behavioural traits <laughs> to, to, to this extent. We and can so, them, we can manage them, but aside from that, um, we can't measure where they're getting to. And and so, like, I guess people might be like, oh, you know, like, what are you doing talking about this, Alex? Well, you know, like, hey. I just, in looking at this, there is actually a framework that's suggested for intuitive eating. We'll get into that. Um, so I just, I, my intention behind this is, hey, we want to just get some balance out along some of this like confirmation bias, straw man stuff that's put out to sort of reinforce these neurotic tendencies. And yeah. then they might be like, oh, well, what's Mac doing? You know, like when was the last time Mac competed? Probably like seven, six, seven years ago or something. And it's yeah. like, well, Mac is a sports nutritionist who primarily coaches through like qualitative means with weight management clients. So like not weight stable, like they're still looking to lose weight or gain yeah. weight, but he co coaches primarily through qualitative means um, and yeah. has done. So Mac, how long have you been doing that for? Oh, mate. Oh, I, I don't know. Like I definitely started off being more of a mac macro coach, Steve, um, <laughs> when I got into the nutrition thing. But yeah, as I realized like working with people, trying to help them with their struggles and stuff, I think that uh, the desire and need for like non-tracking sort of approaches really came to light. And it's, um, I feel like for me as a practitioner, it gives me an opportunity to critically think more, think on my feet, be more, a little, a little bit more intellectual in, in almost like a real world logical sense too. Um, and just like think pragmatically. So it, speaking to the argument of in your off season as a physique athlete, um, I think my opinions largely come from working with people who've come from that neurotic sort of phase of nutrition in their life and them being in a state of despair and needing help to, you know, 
they, they don't like the fact that they feel reliant on tracking and it's something that really upsets them and they want to move away from that. And that, I tend to deal with like work with a lot of clients in that situation. Mm. Um, so from my perspective, if you were to ask me, do I think bodybuilders should track their food in the, in, in the off season to the nearest two to five uh, grams per macro, <laughs> I would say there is a logical argument for both sides. As you said, Alex, you know, you can control variables if you are tracking, but I think the other side of the coin is well, um, we've got to remember that we're doing this to be happy. And if we are so neurotic and perf- and like so perfect in the off season that it's impacting our happiness because it's hard for us to have a social life, it's hard for us to enjoy other things in life that contribute to total health. And I think that can be a negative thing. And I actually think it, it might negatively impact long-term bodybuilding success because it may reduce longevity and it may also uh, sort of drive periods of non-adherence. Um, mm. Now, I think there are a few camps in the physique space where the physique uh, preparation sort of coaching space where there are a group of people who say, you've got to track in the off season because if you want to be the best, that's what you got to do. And again, I see that logical argument. But I think in reality, less people than we think actually do that. Like of the bodybuilders you know or the people who've competed, how many of them do you honestly think are that dedicated to the level where they're like, yep, I'm going to track every single day in my off season, like indefinitely. Um, I think if you actually looked at most people, you'd find that it's only the real serious, like proper dedicated, you know, this is my lifelong hobby sort of thing type people who are doing that. I mean, the people I know who've competed, uh, including myself several years ago when I competed in uh, ICN men's men's bikini, um, <laughs> men's fitness. <laughs> um, um, it was just like, it was just because I wanted the experience. I wanted to challenge myself, do it once. And, you know, a few people I know, you know, they do it a couple of times, but they're not tracking in their off season. They're, you know, living their life. And for them and how bodybuilding fits into their values, great. How physique sports fits into their values, that suits them. Um, But for the people who are like, this is my everything, like my lifelong thing, I think firstly, if you're going to go down that route, you need to make sure that is really the case Um, because Mm. you might get sort of coerced into that uh, in the moment without really thinking about it more deeply. And before you know it, you're like stuck in this place of, oh, if I don't have my fitness pal, I'm going to binge eat. And oh, you know, you'll justify it as well. You, you'll sort of use that internal bias to say, no, uh, I want to be the best I can be. Therefore, I must track 365 days a year for year on end. And I have like a 2000 day my fitness pal streak. Um, so I see there's, a, there's an argument for that again, but I think that it also can go the other way and there is an argument for long-term, even for the dedicated physique athlete, that actually impacting success long-term due to the life enjoyment and longevity factors that I mentioned before. Mm. Yeah. So, I, think, uh, I think what you just said there, Mag, like that, it, it alludes a lot to something that, that I really took out of it, um, how where, where they were alluding to um, trying to facilitate the flexibility of a, of a non, non-dichotomous thinking style throughout yeah. the throughout the, the throughout the, the the phase of competition as being something that is super important because it allows someone to not have that element of, of neuroses that, that ends up contributing to all those extra I'm sure we're going to get into this all those extra kind of like biological factors that, that occur later on yeah and and I guess just to give some background Mac I reckon you probably be coaching people from a primarily qualitative perspective and that's gen pop performance athletes and then the odd physique person um, for probably, I would say the better part of the last three years, that's where your primary focus has been. 
And so you've been able to elicit a lot of those responses and like positive results for those people without having Mm. the two to five grand per macro macro coach, Steve, as you would put it approach. Right. So that, 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 that's why Max here, I think, just to sort of um, break down what you said as well, Kyle, like an example of the dichotomous thinking that people have or that binary of thinking as it relates to like tracking what we're talking about is that they think if I'm not tracking, it's bad. Mm. And if I am tracking, it's good. Or if I'm not, if I'm, if I have a period in my off season and I'm not tracking, then I am definitely screwing my potential. And so, and so the question that I'll pose to you guys is, is like, what evidence do we have to suggest that by not tracking in your off season every two, like to be within two to five grams and tracking everything in the off season, are you actually like screwing your off season up? What evidence do we have to suggest that? Well, we don't really. And then at least, at least on anything that I've found, um, no. one of the things, well, one of the things that, uh, I, I really took out of this is, is the whole, uh, modified intuitive eating approach that they were alluding to, um, positioning after that kind of transitional period, which pretty much is all about being able to have higher protein meals in an off season without calculating it as being something that is going to mitigate a lot of these psychologically controlling or, or, or detrimental factors. Mm. Um, they did also, uh, mention of, of, of Jackson's paper in the intermittent dieting stuff. Um, and that certainly can be flipped uh, in, in the opposing position. It doesn't need to be going towards weight loss. It can be going towards the psychological benefits you can have from intermittent dieting in an off season or in a caloric surplus as well. Mm. So if anything, we can find, you know, I could, I could find evidence from those papers alone to support the position that doing these things can only benefit um, uh, the, the the psychological functions at least in an off season, but we definitely don't have anything that at least I would be aware of that are going against it because it's not a big uh, not a big element that people are taking into consideration at the moment. Mm. Or it could also be something that a lot of bodybuilders don't really want to consider because it goes too strongly against their own internal bias that we don't want to conclude that not being consistent and and uh, measured and calculated in off-season could potentially be better for us because it doesn't support our opinion of this high level of neuroses leads to greater impact on performance and and further improvements in a competition. Mm-hmm. I'll just um I'll just echo Carl there and say, yeah, I think that there isn't any evidence to suggest that tracking to the nearest two to five grams is gonna make you perform better in, in bodybuilding. But I do think there's a logical argument for it. But I also think that people like sort of get tunnel vision on that logical argument and don't consider the possibility that you can actually achieve an outcome without tracking your macros. And the other thing we've got to remember is that even tracking in and of itself is not black or white. You can half track, like you can track just your total calories. You could track, you know, during the working week, but not on the weekend. You could track half days. Um, You know, you could have macro ranges. So like, it's not necessarily about tracking versus not tracking. It's just also about the spectrum of tracking. Mm, Um, Yeah. But also, like, you can absolutely achieve a certain outcome, uh, you know, in the context of physique sports without tracking. Um, Yes, you might not have that high-level confidence that you are, you know, ticking all the boxes perfectly. uh, But in the grand scheme of things, does that really matter that much? Like, does your body... Does your muscle mass gains like really care if one day you were 1.8 grams per kilo and the next day you were 2.2 grams per kilo? Like, is it really going to make a difference if you're sort of within that range? No. Um, let's be honest, it's not. Um, and then also what? with that. Hang on. It won't? 
<laughs> no. Then also with that, um, when you start to consider, hey, you're like, if I'm not so neurotic with my tracking, I might actually be able to, you know, have a bit more of a social life. I might be able to be a little bit more flexible with my nutrition and, and not dedicate so many mental resources to it, which means, you know, other areas of my life can flourish. And that might make you a happier person. It may help you thrive in things like your career or your study or whatever. Um, and then that may for may therefore, you know, give you a better long-term success and overall happiness and fulfillment as a human. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think what you guys have postured in position is like bang on. Right. Like, and I think we don't have it, the evidence. And I think, and Kyle and I were talking about this as well. And so I think for people listening to this and like, like the, the intention is just to challenge perspective. So that way we can invite room for possibility. Right. So if you're listening to this and you would consider yourself evidence-based, but you're saying you need to track in the off season to maximize your, you know, your, like your, your off season potential, then that's not an evidence-based statement. That's an empirical statement that you have through confirmation bias of anecdote that really to me is no different to then suggesting like what we did back in the day, right? Which was this an like ancestral um, hand-me-down logic based on, hey, well, my coach was really good and then they told me to do this. It, it, it's akin to have tilapia to thin your skin three weeks out. So move from chicken breast and turkey and red meat to tilapia. That'll thin your skin. You'll be have thinner skin on stage and you do that in the last three weeks. That like That's the same logic. And I don't think people are aware of that. So like if you do consider yourself evidence-based, you're in fact not evidence-based if you're saying you have to track in the off-season to maximize your off-season because we don't know that. We don't have evidence to suggest that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. We don't have evidence to suggest it, but I think you could definitely, like looking at evidence, make arguments that actually there's, you know, when we look at the disordered eating stuff and the stuff that Jake Lenardin's done, um, I certainly think that you could make arguments that the evidence even suggests that tracking to that level that consistently is not a good idea. Yeah. So I think if you were exclusively yeah. to look at evidence, it would be more evidence-based to say don't track in the off-season. But with yeah. that being said, if you want to be the best bodybuilder you can possibly be and it's your lifelong thing, I do see a logical argument to going mm. to that level. But mm. again, I think some people like really sort of hold on to that and without even considering the possibility of not tracking, they're like, no, that won't work. No, yeah. that won't work. Exactly. And if we look at the, like the goal of an off-season for a physique competitor, right, is to build muscle. What's the primary driver of muscle hypertrophy, right? Net positive protein balance, net positive calories. And like, I would say it's resistance training, right? Resistance training sits above those other two. So mm. like, if, like if we're talking about what's one metric, if you want to track something that's like worth it, track your volume tolerance and performance in a hypertrophy rep range, like, and, and look to progress there. That would be my suggestion. I wouldn't be, you know, like, like, like to me, it's like, saying hit your macros in your off season to two to five grand is like someone pissing on my back and telling me that it's raining. And if they say that that is the, that that's the priority and primary thing that's going to drive it because it's not the thing for hypertrophy is you've got to be increasing. You've got to be able to lift more. You've got to be able to handle more total reps, to, total sets in the hypertrophy rep range and like a spectrum of really like, let's say three to 20 repetitions, spending more time at eight to 15 or something like that. 100%. We've got to remember that muscle growth is a response to a stimulus. It's a stress response to a stressor and a stress being a training with nutrition just augments that. It just 
promotes that further. Um, and I think there's also, you could say that, hey, if you didn't track so neurotically in your off season that you actually felt a little bit more relaxed and, you know, you had other positive things in your life, maybe you might enjoy your training a little bit more, which means that if you're joining, enjoying your training a little bit more, you feel good on like just generally, you might train a little bit better, better training, better training stimulus, better outcome. That's exactly. like, I'm making a logical yeah. argument there too. Mm. Mm. Exactly. And I think, I think so. Like, like I think losing sight of the training priority. It's like you know, nutrition during prep. That's mm. the priority. Training in the off season is the priority. And I think, like Eric, when he was presenting this stuff, uh, Kyle, this was back in twenty nineteen conference, right? Early twenty nineteen. Yeah. And he, yeah. like, his biggest thing was, you're still eating the food, mm. right? Like, just because we don't put it in my fitness pal doesn't mean that you haven't had the calories or the protein. Yeah. And so I guess then the next question is. Could you like, like you just did Mac as well. Like, can you make an argument that by in an off season periodizing periods where you're working on improving your qualitative literacy and understanding of your own intuitive eating, um, that you're then getting another metric variable and tool to then be able to triangulate with both in the off season and during prep that then helps you have a more productive off season by being more qualitatively aware and intuitively aware as to how your body's responding, you can still track weights, right? So like mm. when I'm talking about this, it's like, how am I feeling in relation to fullness response to that food and all that stuff? I don't have to track it to the gram and I'm just resistance training and tracking a bit of that and then tracking my body weight. How do I feel in relation to that? If I'm then seeing how it's responding and then I'm like chasing more of a feeling and then you get good and sensitive to that. To me, it's like, well, that's another valuable data point that you can then use in your off season and in your prep to then be a more successful physique athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, when we're going into the phase of looking at, at uh, transitioning back into a surplus, um, there's there's that middle ground that, that the paper was talking about as well of, of finding that balance between having a, a tapered and, and quantified approach while still having a sizable energy surplus, but also um, inducing that, that steady weight gain rather than something that's rapid um, to then uh, as well like coincide with any guidance that's being given from coaches and stuff to help reconnect those internal cues of satiety and hunger that, that we know get downregulated uh, in, an, in, in, in an energy deficit later on, especially when prep is, is, is getting harder. Um, I think one, one key point to remember getting into uh, an off-season or coming out of, of, of a contest is why are we doing the things that we're doing? A, lo a lot of people will be restricting calories um, further on afterwards because of the neuroses that's associated with it. But at the same time, they're doing it to avoid rapid weight gain after the comp or they're doing it to mitigate some of the, the you know, undesirable effects of, of, quick, of quick body weight gain or, or quick body fat um, re reintroduction and in doing so it takes away um, a lot of the potential um, physiological benefits that can occur post contest even though you may be getting some uh, slight hormonal rebound uh, afterwards if the practice is on and the psychological I guess uh, arousal level is based around uh, mitigating uh, any extra fat gain or any extra weight gain then they're setting themselves up for, for a potential inability to really access those internal cues like Later on, because their internal mm. cues are, are relying on the fact that oh, I'm now tying my feelings of hunger or satiety to my potential level of body fat or weight that I'm seeing. But the goal that I'm having around that weight or, or the body fat level that I want to achieve is now misaligned with how I'm trying to feel. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think there is issues with not having a trustworthy connection with your internal hunger cues and mm. being able to regulate your intake 
exclusively through how you feel. And the reasons for that extend, or at least I'll start with, are you going to track your calories forever? Eventually, I don't care who you are, the day will come where you will be in a situation where you will not track your calories anymore, whether it's decades after your bodybuilding career or maybe just acutely when, you know, it's Christmas Day. You know, mm. what are you going to do when mm. it's Christmas Day and your grandma brings out her homemade Christmas pudding? Are you going to say, oh, I can't track that because I don't know the macros or are you going to sit down there? Are you going to sit down and eat it? And yeah, what if, you, do you do? If you're not four weeks out from a show or something, then yeah. and like it's an off season. Yeah. How, yeah. how are you going to track that, right? Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to track that? What are you going to do? Now, if you have an, a reasonable you know, level of trust with your internal cues, you can say, thanks, Gran. I'm going to have a logical portion of this uh, Christmas pudding. Oh, it's great. It's the best Christmas pudding I've ever had. You're going to make her happy. You're going to eat an amount that sort of feels right because you actually can trust your internal cues. Um, you're going to be a happier person. Gran's going to like you. You may be more like fulfilled as a, you know, you just got that skill there to be able to navigate mm. those like situations where you can't track your food because you can probably track it, you know, sure, but it's never going to be that like accurate. And who would want to track? Like there are times where tracking can be a big burden to enjoyment. You know, you don't want to be that friend at the restaurant who's just got your my fitness pal out trying to desperately figure out what you know how much chicken was in that pad thai you just ordered. Mm. Um, so I think like if you have the skill to be able to eat two internal cues, it's a good thing. And I think if you don't have that skill, there are going to be situations in your life where you are like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate this. And that's going to be problematic. It may even result in excessive eating and it may play into that black or white sort of approach to tracking. No, we think of flexible dieting as this flexible thing, but it can be quite rigid. It can be like black or white. You know, if I can't track this, everything's out the window, might as well just binge eat. That Mm. I think can happen a lot. And I've seen it happen a lot with people who've come to me after periods of being invested in tracking and like feeling that reliance there. And it's a very tricky thing to navigate or deal with. So let's on, on this, right? Because we only got five more minutes. Let's talk about what intuitively eating actually is, right? Because some yeah. people have put out, you know, content and they're like, and they'll put out content and, and, and rightfully so, right? They'll say, well, if I just eat based on how I feel, that's intuitively eating. What we're referring to is a set of principles that have been suggested in the paper, right? So we've got published principles and methods to intuitively eat. It's not some bastardized opinion of me taking the words literally and saying, I'm intuitively eating and then putting my own definition on it to create an analogical straw man to then throw that concept out the window, right? So it's not me going, I eat till I feel like I'm full. That intuitively eating and that principle, that, that, that's not it. But if you were to do that at the end of a prep, hey, guess what? You're going to be eating way more. So like, you still need some structure and to exercise some restraint. We're talking about Flexible restraint versus rigid restraint. Now, tracking your food, like you said, Mac, that's an example of more flexible restraint than following a meal plan, but it is still a rigid restraint Mm -hmm. if it is coming from the place of, if I track, it's good. If I don't track, it's bad. That's rigid restraint. So- 100%. So well said. Let's 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 talk about what that actually is, I guess. And the other thing is like some people put out videos where they're like, if I eat based on how I'm eating- I, my output's 4,500, but then I'm going to have 7,000 calories in a day, but they're eating out at every meal. Breakfast is eating out, lunch is eating out, eating out for a snack, eating out for dinner, eating out for dessert. That's what they felt like. But I tell you what, if you're meal prepping and you're just eating and you're following the principles of intuitive eating that's been published, 
that's a very different scenario than if you're eating out at every meal. If I eat yeah. out at every meal and I intuitively eat for every meal, I'm going to be in a calorie surplus because most food, when you eat out, has more sugar, more fat, and more salt in a highly palatable calorie dense version. And it's primarily in sources and stuff. So if I'm meal, meal prepping or I'm organizing my food and I'm preparing it myself, or I'm selecting fast food alternatives that are more healthful and I'm doing so following intuitive eating principles or the principles discussed in the paper, what does that actually look like? Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's important to differentiate too. You know, like um, Mac, like what you suggested with, with going into Christmas and and just having some slice of cake or something uh, with with grandma and, and everything. That that that's not intuitive eating. You know, like that's not what we're alluding to. That 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 being able to be confident and competent with your own internal cues um, and, and being able to look at the things you know that have been suggested here. And I think a lot of people at the moment when we are discussing intuitive eating would think that just doing what we feel like um, is being intuitive, where your your intuition is absolutely horrible at guiding your food selection. Yeah, you've got a remedial uh, level of that literacy. You are remedial right now. The majority of people, we haven't developed these skills, right? So Max suggesting someone that has a high level of that literacy, having some of that pudding, they're exercising the restraint, but it's a slice within reason, within the, within, I guess, the concepts of the method of intuitive eating, but they have a very high level of literacy. Yeah, exactly, and I think this this paper uh, presents a lot of those a lot of those um, external cues that we can be thinking of, as well as the internal ones um, around you know having multiple high protein meals throughout the day. That's obviously going to be helping with with, with with satiety, but it's not about measuring what that protein is. It's about having a, a considered portion um, that we know is going to be a portion that is dependent on our satiety cues. So the satiety cues are actually guiding the portion sizes and not the opposite way around. We're not giving the portion and then going, oh, how am I feeling after this? It's that 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 cue is kind of guiding it along the basis of making sure that we are including um, micronutrient-dense sources, um, particularly for carbohydrates, making sure we get in our plants and everything in as well at the same time. Eating meals around training times as well. Um, You know, there's plenty of arguments and straw man ones too that go around, you know, is this better? Is this worse to eat before, eat after, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's there's a lot of merit to be had for being able to actually include that as as a cue for yourself to understanding, okay, well, this can actually help with auto-regulation with, 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 with some of our energy as well. So I think that's a, that's an important point to sort of consider is that even though um, it is intuitive and we are relying on that term, it's, it's modified. And we're looking at some some situations and some and some cues that we can be doing that that help to produce uh, more nutritional like conducive habits um, that mm. can lead to a, to, to a, a longevity in, in in the off season. Yeah, and I think like anything, right? It's a skill, so yeah. you have to develop it the same way that. You, like for instance, right? If you have a client and they're illiterate when it comes to tracking macros and following a meal plan and stuff, are you going to let them prep straight away? Absolutely not, right? Like you, not, you yeah. can't trust that they're going to be competent at even the quality, uh, the quantitative stuff that you need from them to be an effective coach. It's the same thing with qualitative, right? It's the same thing with basing, like like following intuitive eating principles. That's a skill that has to be developed, right? And so what we're talking about, Mac, just um, fill in the blanks that I'll miss, but we're looking at fullness as it relates to meal selection, right? So if we prioritize a good protein source, we prioritize a good plant source, and then we look at some grains, and then we look at, and, and then once we've got that pretty much at every meal, then, and, 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 and when we're looking at serving sizes, the easiest thing is just to look at fist, palm, um, and then uh, thumbs when we're looking yeah. at that stuff as it relates to the person. And then you're, then you're assessing that on the basis of 
how you feel in relation to that, right? So that might be feelings of fullness, which which is satiety. That might be feeling of satisfaction as well, enjoyment. Did you enjoy it? And how did you feel in relation to your training or practice sporting endeavor that then occurred? Does that meal then suit it? And then we might use something like a method where then we're getting evaluation across all of those aspects in relation to what's happening with their weight. Mm. And then what's happening with their yeah, performance. Yeah. We, and we, then we're we get that biofeedback um, to, yeah. to kind of help us to aug- augment the energy intake. Yeah. Yeah. So we're certainly, we're certainly talking modified intuitive eating there. So that's, uh, I'm echoing what you guys are saying there because by definition, intuitive eating is weight neutral here. So if we're trying to push our body weight up in the off season, inherently already, it's going to be sort of modified or whether you'd even really call it intuitive eating could be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, look, in the modern world, especially if you're just eating to to internal cues and how you feel, even if you have a really strong and trustworthy connection with those cues, uh, you know you're going to be eating in a large surplus due to the nature of the food environment. Especially if you're eating out all the time and stuff like that. So, in terms of controlling your intake without tracking. Internal cues is really only going to be a small part of it. It also requires a high level of literacy and understanding, you know, what foods are going to fill you up. And that's going to be, you know, moderating the palatability of food. So the, the deliciousness, it's also going to be eating lots of plant matter, low calorie per bite foods, voluminous sort of foods, because if you're just going out to, you know, restaurants and all that all the time, then even if your internal cues are great, you're going to be eating a lot of calories. So it's mm. a combination of all of the above. Um, in terms of non-tracking portion sizes, as you alluded to there, Alex, we can use hand-sized portions as well as something that's a bit of a middle ground to give us a little bit of extra trust, palm size of protein, uh, cupped handful carbs, thumbs of fat, fists of plants. Like that's sort of where we would start there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's understanding that this skill is something like the modified version. It's we're still being guided by intuitive eating, right? So we're just letting training performance and then feelings around that based on the food that we're having and then how we feel we're recovering and then weight regulation, then guide our intuitive decision-making process along the way. But we are then further refining those skills. And it's important to understand that like this takes time to develop, right? But it isn't something, it's not this throwaway statement or straw man line where it's like, you just eat based on how you feel. That's an uninformed, that's an uninformed perspective that is then like, like probably come from a place of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance where it's like, you don't want to accept the fact that you're, you're avoiding dealing with your neurotic tendencies. So if you're thinking, oh, if you're hearing this and you're like, look, you know what? I'm five months in my off season and I can't let go of that. And I don't want to develop this skill. And it's coming from a place of it's maximizing my off season, Mm. then you're more likely to be coming from a place of like cognitive dissonance and neurotic control rather than looking at developing a skill that's, you know, more than likely on the basis of the literature right now is going to help you more. Mm. And and and, and base, basing on that on, on the literature right now too, um, if you're experiencing that not even in an off season, but in that transition towards being in an off season, you know, if you're struggling to go from a a, a more a semi-quantified approach and tapering into it while still being in being in a in a substantial surplus, and you're struggling to move into that like almost purely uh, qualitative approach, um, then that 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 distance is going to be even stronger. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing going from like. You know, I achieved X goal with tracking to now I'm just going to let go of the thing that helped me get this amazing mm, outcome that I'm so yeah, proud of. It's not yeah. an easy thing. And so we're not shitting on that. It's hard to sort of, yeah, it's hard to admit yourself that 
admit to yourself that, hey, this is this is worthwhile going through that struggle phase where maybe I don't have much confidence without my fitness power and I have to sort of push through that. That's mm-hmm. a hard thing to tackle. And a lot of people use that straw man argument yeah. to avoid it. It's sort of like, you know, avoiding the problem by like, mm-hmm. just oh, you know, I want to be the best bodybuilder I can be ever. So, uh, no, I got to track all the time. Yeah, that, that uh, non-tracking thing, yeah, that's not going to happen. Is that really the case? Logical argument again. But I think that um, there's a lot of sort of avoiding the problem too. Yeah. I think like we're, we're all, we all experienced it, right? Like I think I tracked for three years straight before I stepped away and then realized, oh, wow, you don't have to do this. Kyle, you pro- I, how long did you oh, track? Oh, mine, mine was near 10, man, of, of what yeah. was like spot on. And, and you know, like, man, it's, it's such a good point. Um, and it's, it's what you and I were speaking about a little bit earlier on, Alex. Like sometimes we get results uh, in spite of what we do, not so much because of what we do. Yeah. And you know, let, letting go of the of that need to to be so neurotic and have all that control is a very very difficult thing. Um, my my argument that I pose all the time, if someone is is being like, oh, I can't do this because you know I'm trying to be consistent, dedicated, and determined. Well, part of doing that is rising to the occasion of a challenge that is different to what you've been done uh, to, to what you've been doing uh, already. And if what you've been doing to get the result is con- consistent neurotic tracking, causing a whole bunch of these controlling behaviors to occur, then if you were really as committed as what you'd like to be, you would challenge yourself to do something that opposes that bias that you have and, and it's mm. been, that's been developed. Yeah, and this well. is a guy, so this is from a guy that tracked for 10 years and then he got in the best shape of his life for a prep, not tracking at all. Winging it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just basing it, it off those skills. It can be done. But you have, like, the best way. you have to spend time in the trenches to develop that literacy. Yeah. It's that simple. Like it can't be done and just be like, I'm going to intuitively prep and not have those skills. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like, it, like it is uncomfortable and it does, you have to sort of like, there's an element of trusting the process to step away from what you have done. But I think Kyle, like you hit the nail on the head and we were talking about this probably like a week ago, right? It's like people see world champion level commitment and then they think, oh, everything that they do attributes to that. And it's like, how much is it like one or two key things? And the fact that they're like phenomenal genetic outliers that would succeed in spite of their protocols. Mm. So like, like, like it's, it's not the fact that Usain Bolt had some crazy nutrition plan or training program. I'm pretty sure Usain Bolt was like known for smashing KFC all the time. He's a genetic outlier and most world champions are, yeah, they're dedicated. Don't get me wrong, but it's not every little bit of, every little bit of a variable and method to their metric that you need to then replicate the whole thing of it's understanding chances are they're probably a genetic outlier. And there's maybe like one or two key things that they're doing that they're doing really well on that you need to capitalize on as well. And chances are it's not following macro coach Steve's Steve's two to five gram tracking approach, Mm -hmm. right? I, I, yeah. I mean, we got to look at how many of the um, like world champion people there are that are dedicating committed stuff, and then in, draw a comparison between the amount of people that are tracking to that extent um, and are extremely dedicated that aren't world champions. And then you can kind of draw that logical conclusion and go, oh, "Hang on a second, it is not just the practice specifically that gets to yeah. the result. It's it's not it's not that behavior that's synonymous with success, right? Yeah. And it's like it, you know, and it's like just because they're doing something at that point in time doesn't make it right either. Like Lester Ellis, the boxer, famous Australian boxer, was mm-hmm. world champion he used to get up and run at 3 a.m in the morning right and he did it because his like his logical argument was i was training when my opponents were sleeping so i was getting advantage of them right makes sense how is that any different to our off-season thing that we don't like off-season tracking meticulousness that we don't have any evidence for at the moment as it turns out if we were to look at like lester ellis probably would have been better off spending a little bit more time in bed and recovering for the longevity of his sport right because we know how important sleep is but you know that's just an example of it sleep sleep is for the week 
And and speaking to that, Alex, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not in the bodybuilding space like you are, Kyle, or other people. Anymore, um, anymore. Yeah, but like <laughs> I've seen some funny shit on social media where you'll get like these IFBB pros talk this absolute waffle that is just so backwards. It's like, quote, unquote, I would call it straight up dumb shit. And <laughs> they're better than all of the people who are like tracking their macros 365 to the nearest grand. They're doing like this really stupid shit, but they're still better. So I think like if you actually look at the top of the top, you might find that what they're doing might not actually be like this proposed, like this is what I need to do to be the best, like when the best aren't actually practicing that. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's not just because of the fact that they're like um, a, a genetic outlier with it. It's like that we kind of got to realize when we see that, we, we have to take into consideration our own level of self-awareness to understand that sometimes no matter what we do or whatever practices we take, we just won't get there to yep. that level. And I think it's a healthy realization to have. You know, I have my own realization of that where I go, you know what? Uh, I'm really happy with where I can get to with my progress. And I'm super stoked with what 15 years of training and dieting has done for my physique, but I will never look like Lee Priest, no matter what I do. Is that is that undisciplined, undedicated? It may be because I don't want to commit myself into sticking to that anymore. Because to me, it's like, well, when you have that realization, you can kind of weigh up your priorities and go, well, is this important? The inner bodybuilder goes, well, of course it is. You're just a quitter. You need to be able to like make sure you're doing this day in, day out. You live it and you breathe it. But when life starts to happen and as we go through further progressions in the sport, you start to go, oh, well, actually, I can still be as committed and dedicated to my own personal levels that I'd like to be. But maybe it's not worth going to the nth degree in order to achieve something that realistically, if I haven't achieved it yet, I won't achieve it. And I think that's a, it's, it's a hard thing for people to see. Um, and, and, you know, I, I struggled a lot with it when I made the decision. But at the end of the day, it, it's it's one of the best decisions that I think people can make uh, in, in the bodybuilding world. It's like, well, where realistically can this level of dedication and obsession and, and, and neuroticism get me to? And mm. if I keep taking it to that level, what am I prepared to give up um, for that to happen? And we can say one answer now, and it might be different from what our answer will be in five, ten years years time um but most of the time we can always look at it and, and we can have little cues to see well if you weren't the genetically elite growing up or in the first year or so of you doing it you're probably not going to get to the state in which you think you can purely by hard work and grit and determination yeah you know, we might want to talk about it but it's not going to get you there and so if i'm to simplify what kyle said just so people can digest this really well if i'm five foot four and my name is not spud webb I'm probably not going to be an NBA basketball player. I feel, I feel attacked. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Right. Like if you yeah. like, 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 like that's a good thing. You know, I, like I played pretty high level basketball. I'm six foot two. I was not going to get a scholarship to an NCAA college unless I grew another two and a half inches. It's that simple. Right. Mm. So if it, like, and it's the same thing with bodybuilding. Right. So like, and if your rationalization for those behaviors is that's what the world champion's doing, but you're the five foot four non-spud web equivalent trying to play basketball, then that's where you need to ask yourself, are those behaviors actually going to get you there? Chances are the answer is no. Is that okay? Yes. And if it is, would that, would you change your approach then to the sport? to then incorporate a positive longevity aspect rather than meticulous neuroticism when chances are you're the five foot four spud web without a, you know, 42 inch vertical jump, right? Like you're not going to make the NBA in basketball. Try bodybuilding instead. <laughs> right. Exactly. Mm. I think um, kind of being able to 
honestly think about where a particular endeavor fits within your life and what's going to make you happy is an important thing. Like, you know, you might love bodybuilding, but you eventually, unless you are like, you know, Lee Priest or something, you're going to come to that realization that, you know, bodybuilding is just going to, it's always ever going to, it's only ever going to be, you know, to this level. It's never going to be your full-time job or it's never going to be like whatever you sort of envisioned when you first started. Um, and I think once you come to that realization and you have that honest sort of discussion with yourself, you can then sort of reverse engineer how it's going to fit within your daily life. You know, what sacrifices are you willing to make on other things that might be important to you, your career, your family life? Like, you know, there might be some people out there who it really is their everything. But I think for most people out there, like there are other things that matter too and we need to put it into context and not lose sight of the bigger picture. Yeah. And I mean, a perfect example of that is like we can all remember when we came up, like we attach ourselves to a plan. We think this is the perfect plan. And I know for myself that materialized 10 years ago, 15 years ago into like getting cell tech and whatever, like NO explode and cell mass and all this stuff. And I'm like reading these university studies from the university of Florida. And I'm like, Oh my God, these guys look at the before and after photos. They're putting on 10, 15 pounds of muscle in two weeks. So if I follow this protocol and I train like this program in muscular development, I'm going to look like this guy. And I was like certain that my thousand dollars worth of supplements for just that six week period was going to get me those results. And I look back now and I was like, what the hell was I thinking? But I was so attached at that mm. point in time to that plan working. I had so much emotional attachment to the placebo effect of that yeah. plan. And I probably just had fluoro radioactive piss for about six weeks and I maybe grew a kilo. That was it. And, and how, how did you, you feel? Yeah, sorry. How did you feel when you didn't get the results that you expected? Very disappointed. Yeah. Cheated. That was quite a negative thing, right? On your yeah. psychology. Like you went through some tough times there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, man, here I am like a, like a student, like a uni student, not, not with not that much disposable income pissing my money away on this stuff. Like I wasn't happy. I was, I was pissed off. I was like, this sucks. There we go. So, <laughs> so if we're going to do a wrap up on this, just so we can wrap this up and get away from that awkward silence. So, and like Max, Max head bobbed. Um, if we're going to wrap this up, like what, how, how do you, how do you want to wrap it up from your end? We'll go Kyle first and then Mac, then me. So I think to echo on with, with, with what both you guys have said, um, let, let's not try to think so black and white about the approaches to whether it's um, uh, flexible eating, flexible dieting, intuitive eating, meal plans, prep, stuff like that. There are some gray lines and some modified approaches that we know now um, can work out quite uh presumably uh, more positive and positive in, in the light of we can have something to gain from positive doesn't necessarily always need to be good. It's just that there's something that can be added as opposed to negative being something can be taken away. Um, there, there's a lot of positive aspects that we can have, we can gain into transitioning into a, an approach um, throughout a, a competition phase um, going from competition prep to transition to an off season to then in a full blown off season that we can modify to focus on both the internal cues plus some more quantitative results and, and, and considerations after a prep period in order to mitigate some of the, the psychological contraindications that can, they can come across. Um, I'd also want to say that if you are noticing or, or, or know that you are high on some of these behavioral traits of neuroticism and perfectionism and, 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 and obsession, then these are really big considerations to look out for 
as you are deciding to get into a competition or deciding to go deeper into the sport and, and compete at a higher level, it's not that you having these things are bad at all. It's that these things can predispose you to further issues later on down the track. And if you can aware yourself of what those issues may be um, and just challenge your opinion to try things a little bit of a different way because this research is new, um, then you might be surprised in which a, a different outcome may help you out uh, with a more sustainable approach. Mm. For me, I would say that if you are partaking in any goal and you're really dedicated and you start to get the sniff that it is negatively impacting your being, um, then it might be worth taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. You know, is this approach to this thing actually enhancing my life or has it started to go beyond that point of diminishing returns where actually it's a net negative on just me in general. Um, and more specifically to the topic of today, I think that I'm of the personal opinion that if you are in a situation where you feel reliant on tracking and, you know, the thought of going out to a meal with your friends or having grandma's Christmas pudding or something fills you with anxiety, then that's something that I think is worth addressing. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. It requires being honest and upfront with yourself and putting sort of your own personal biases to the side and saying, you know, for me being a happy person, it's worth me going through this sort of pinch point of learning a skill that I'm not familiar with um, and putting myself in a situation where I'm feeling not very confident about stuff. I want to echo both of what these guys said. They've hit the nail on the head. I, the only things that I want to finish on is more just addressing practitioners on the whole, right? So if you're a practitioner and let's just say it's not even in prep and you're saying you got to track your steps, you got to track your food, like you got to understand the limitations to these things anyway, right? Like a pedometer, typically they're inaccurate, but then there's even for the accurate ones, they're not an accelerometer. Accelerometers are ridiculously expensive and we can't hook our clients up to that. So you're not going to be able to control those variables well. With food, unless they are extremely developed in their quantitative literacy and food preparation and selection methods, you're not going to be able to control that well. And then the DCA will take care of that as well. I think we're pressing, impressing far too much importance on lofty variables that can be quite inconsistent within themselves up to about 40 to 60% anyway. Um, and there's probably more cons and, and damages than there are pros associated with doing that. So for, just for the general practitioner, tracking calories for a client is not two minutes of their day. We need to stop saying that, right? As it relates to bodybuilding, if you're a coach and you're saying it's evidence-based to do that, it's not. Like right now, the evidence suggests the the opposite, like the guys were saying. it's in, It would be empirically based, right? We have empirical evidence to suggest that, but that empirical evidence is really no difference to the tilapia thinning skin. Oh, oh mate, with the fish and rice cakes, right? That, that was being done 10, 15 years ago, right? It's ancestrally em empirically based. And we don't know that, like, we don't know that that is actually, uh, you know, causation. It's more than likely correlation. So... Just rethink the evidence-based approaches. And then I think 
look, the guys finished it perfectly. So that's my advice. So look, guys, thanks so much for this. Hopefully we've simulated some thoughts. Our goals aren't to say like from this aren't to say, this is the best way. We just want to sort of rebalance a bit of the narrative that's out there. And then finally, it's the intuitive eating based on what is published and then following intuitive eating principles is not what people are propagating a lot of the time out there. Yeah. Word. Yeah.